Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. I don't know if you noticed last week, but Pastor Donnie had some new sneakers on. He didn't even mention them, but uh, I noticed, and, and I appreciated those, Pastor Donnie. Way to go. Well, hey, it's good to see everybody this morning. Hope everyone is doing well today. You know, we sang that song, It Is Well, and it just made me think as we were singing it that, you know, as Christians, it's, it's always well. You know, it's all, the saying used to be, it's all good. With Christians, it's all good. Doesn't matter what the news says. It is well, and it is all good when we're following Jesus. We don't really live by the climate of the day, do we? We don't care if the stock market's great or if it stinks. We don't care if there's, the job reports are good or if they're horrible. We don't care if there's a plague or if there's not a plague. If there's a famine, if there's not a famine, if there's an earthquake, or if there's a hurt. We don't, I mean, not that we don't care about those things. We care about the people in those, but we don't get rocked by those things, do we, as Christians? Because we don't live according to those things. We don't live by the weather. We live according to what the Word of God says, the ever-unchanging Word of God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as is our God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Man, so fun to be a Christian. It's so fun to follow Jesus because it's exciting. It's exciting. It's exciting. And we live differently. Well, this morning, I got a question for you. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you were in over your head? Where you were like out of your league. Is anyone, I, I can tell by the, maybe a few of you have, yeah? Okay. Um, maybe you found yourself in a place where like you were the worst dressed person in the room, you know? I remember when I came to my first, we have these meetings called district council. And when I first started going to district council meetings, it's where all the, uh, the assemblies of God pastors in the state get together. And I remember going to the first one um, as just, you know, as a brand new youth pastor. And I went to it. And at that time, everybody dressed in suits. I mean, that's just what you did. And I was the guy who showed up. I didn't quite have a t-shirt on, but I had a polo on and I had um, like khakis and I stood out like a sore thumb. And it, luckily it was in the, my hometown where I was at. So I just went home at lunch and I changed and came back in a suit. But you know, you find yourself like maybe you're the worst dressed person in the room, or maybe you find yourself in a conversation with people who have a lot more IQ points than you, and you start using like these words you learn in vocab in sixth grade to try to sound intelligent, but it's just not working. Or maybe you're like, maybe you're the person in the room with uh, celebrities or politicians or people that have names, and you're kind of the unknown person, right? There's a lot of situations we might find ourselves in where we're kind of out of our league and in over our head. And I remember one of those times in particular for me, when I was living back in South Dakota and I was a middle school pastor at the time, um, there was a group of guys in church that played basketball. Some of them were very good basketball players. College, they played college, you know, they, they had some skill. And uh, they needed another guy for their weekly games and they kept asking me to play and asking me to play and asking me to play and I kept turning them down and turning them down because just to give you a little bit of background on me when it comes to basketball and my relationship with basketball, it's not good. Um, I was a wrestler. Wrestlers are not basketball. Matt, am I right? Yeah, that's right. We don't play basketball. Number one, we're short, okay? And number two, we just, our brains weren't wired that way. We're not coordinated. Um, and so anyway, you know, I, I don't ever play basketball. Really, at that time, as a, as a middle school pastor, um, the only people I played basketball with were sixth graders, and I would usually play at the beginning when they first came into sixth grade because by the time those girls got to the end of the year, they were too big, and I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't handle them, but I had a size advantage when they were smaller, you know? Um, so needless to say, I just didn't play basketball, but these guys kept persisting, and they kept asking, and they kept asking, and so finally, I was like, all right, and I gave them fair warning. I said, I'm not good. I'm not good at basketball, guys. I'm really, really bad, and so they said, oh, don't worry, don't worry. You'll be, I'm sure you're fine. I'm sure you're fine. Well, 
The day came, and uh, you know, three plays into the game, they completely understood what I was saying. <laughs> they, uh, they stopped guarding me after a few plays. Every once in a while, if I throw up a junk shot and I get lucky, they'd encourage me like a little kid, you know, with, the, with riding their bike for the first time. I'm like, yeah, good job, Jared. That was great. I'm like, patronizing me right now, you know? They didn't mean to be, but they were. And, you know, I'd make a really bad play, which was often, and they would just get, they get really quiet. They were talking, 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 talking trash to each other. And I'd get the ball and they'd just get really, really quiet. It was awkward. It was so awkward. But I muddled through it. And uh, for some reason, they never asked me to play basketball again. I don't know why. But, uh, I just, I found myself at a place where I just, I was not worthy to be on the court with that level of player. And maybe you found yourself in a situation like that where you're just in a place where you're like, I have no business being here. Today I want to share a story with you about a Jewish man who found himself in a similar position, a similar situation, uh, a situation that he really had no business being in, in a place that he found himself where um, he never ever could have earned it or should have been there by rights. We're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. So I'd really like you to, if you have your Bibles, and, and I hope that you do, or if you're using a phone, that's fine too, but get out your Bibles, get out your phone. I want you to actually look at this. It will be up on the screens, but I want you to look at it on your device. I want you to look at it on, in your Bible, and this is a story worth marking, or if you're using an app, like Version app or something, just put a little note, or you can even highlight, I think, in the Version app. So go ahead and just highlight, because this is a story worth remembering, and this is a story worth Knowing. And as you're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 9, I need to give you a little bit of a history lesson, okay? I'm going to give you a little bit of background this morning before we jump into this, otherwise, so that you kind of get the full context of what we're talking about. Um, the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9 um, is about an individual named Mephibosheth. We're going to be talking a lot about him today, but um, the background that I need to let you know before we kind of dive into this is that this story takes place in a time in Israel's history when their first king, Saul, had just died in battle. Uh, Saul was the king when David killed Goliath. He was the one who gave David his armor and said, you know, uh, if you're going to go out and fight Goliath, go ahead and have my armor. And, you know, it was too big for David, and he gave it back. But Saul was the very first king of Israel. Um, and uh, under Saul, David was brought to the palace and he played music for Saul because David was a musician. Uh, David eventually became the commander of the army of Israel. And as Saul continued his reign, David grew in popularity with the people to a place where Saul became very jealous and tried to kill David on several occasions. Sometimes when he was, he would throw spears at him when he was playing music for him. Uh, sometimes he would go after, go after David with his army. Uh, sometimes he would lead the charge himself, and he would go after David. Um, so David had to go out from the city, and he had to hide, and he became kind of a refugee for a number of years uh, in his early adulthood. And uh, he just kind of wandered the countryside, and on numerous occasions, like I said, Saul would come after him. Well, Saul then died in battle, not, not from David. He died in battle with the enemy um, against kind of a neighboring country. And we're going to pick up the story at the point where Saul is dead. David then had been brought in as king because the people, like I said, they loved him. Uh, so they brought him in as king. And he's kind of at the height of his power. And he's at the height of his, his kingdomship. And this is kind of where we're picking up the story this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting at verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for, for Jonathan's sake? I want to I just want to stop right there, and this is going to be a, a rabbit trail side note, but um, David asks, is there anyone in Saul's house who I can show kindness for? Now, I don't know about you, but if someone tried to kill me, 
I wouldn't say, hey, is there, someone, are there, is there more of these people's relatives that I can find that I can just show some kindness to them? You know, I'm probably sure you're probably with me. But how amazing is it that we as Christians don't live by this world's standards, right? Jesus said, if someone hits you on one cheek, turn it to them the other one as well and say, hit me here. We show kindness to our enemies. We don't just love the people that love us. We love the people that don't. And I think that just flies in the face of the way our society is because, man, we are so offended all the time. And, and, and when someone offends us, man, we just, we cut them off and we want to get mad and we have to call somebody and vent. That's not how Christians act. When someone offends us, when someone makes us mad, we should be thinking, how can I show kindness to that person? What can I do to, to make their life better? They must be miserable people, so how can I help them live a better life? What can I do for them? How can I show them the love of Jesus? That's just, it's kind of a side note, but man, I just, I don't see it happening. I don't see it happening in my life a lot of times, to be honest with you, and, and I don't see it happening in the lives of a lot of Christians. I see us being a lot like the world, and when we get offended by someone, man, we just want to come after them, and I want to, I just need to vent, you know, that's one of our popular things. I got to vent, you know. Maybe you need to exercise some self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit, and keep your mouth shut, and love that person, and I'm talking to you the way that the Holy Spirit talks to me, okay? I'm not just yelling at you. I'm, this is what the Holy Spirit's saying to me. So he's probably saying to somebody else too. All right, let's keep going. Verse two. Now there was a servant in Saul's, Saul's house named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David the king and asked him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there anyone still alive from Saul's house to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He's in the house of Machir, son of Emil in Lodabar. So King David had him brought before, or from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Emil. So we're going to stop the story there for a second. We'll pick it up here in a little bit. But um, the story of Mephibosheth, and we don't really, at this point, don't even really know his name, do we? Um, but his name is Mephibosheth. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a completely relatable story. And you'll see that as we go today. It's relatable. You know, sometimes I look in the Bible and I see stories or I see verses or I see accounts and I, I, I'm like, God, why would you put that in there? I, you know, I don't, I don't understand that. But when I read this story, to me it makes complete sense. And you'll see that, you know, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to, to understand that there's major similarities between us and Mephibosheth and you'll see how David is kind of a type of the God the Father. He's kind of like a metaphor for God the Father in this story and it's an incredible story, very relatable, but as we're, we're introduced to Mephibosheth here in this little passage of scripture that I read to you, again, we don't even know his name, but it's Mephibosheth. Um, what do we know about him, and how does he relate to us? Well, number one, um, we know that he was lame, okay? Now, he's not like, not lame. He wasn't like boring, or he wasn't a pain to be, you know, he's totally lame, dude. He wasn't lame. He was, he didn't, he couldn't walk. He was broken. He was disabled. Um, in fact, it became a little bit of his identity, um, they asked, is there anyone that we can show kindness to in the house of Saul? And they said, yeah, there's this guy, uh, Jonathan's son. Uh, he's, he's lame. Then say, this is, this is uh, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. They said, no, there's this Jonathan's son, and he's lame, right? So right away, off the bat, he's kind of a relatable character to us because I don't know about you, but I, I think sometimes we get labeled by the things that hold us back. I think that we get labeled by the things that we're challenged by in life. And, and sometimes that becomes our identity, you know, like, Oh, there's that, there, there's that kid. Uh, yeah, his parents were the ones that just got divorced. Or, you know, oh, there's, there's a, uh, so-and-so. Their, their, their cousin is the one that committed suicide. You know, and we get labeled by 
these, these things in life that are challenges to us. And so here's Mephibosheth, and not even, they won't even say his name. They just call him by his disability. I think that's relatable right off the bat. His culture, you know, the fact that he, was, that, that he couldn't walk, that, that would be a bummer in our culture. You know, that would, that would be a challenge in our culture. Um, but we have things today like, you know, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, that, you know, where, where when you're building a building, you have to think about how can I have access for people that have physical challenges and can't get in the building. And we have uh, technologies that allow us, like, you know, wheelchair, like they didn't have wheelchairs back then. They have wheelchairs now where, you know, we have this cool thing, and I don't know if Todd didn't see Todd this morning, but um, our buddy Todd, you know, he's in a wheelchair, and he's got a truck that literally has a crane. It's the coolest thing in the world. And like, he's like, like puts him in his truck and takes him. I mean, he can do anything. I mean, the guy goes out hunting for crying out loud, you know? It's amazing what we have. But they didn't have that back in the day. I mean, imagine being a farmer because that's pretty much what their culture was and not being able to go out into the field. That was the life that he lived. He couldn't walk. He was lame. He had to depend on other people to do things for him. And so um, he's broken, you know? And ironically, his brokenness came from a fall. Now, if we go backward in his story, we find that when, uh, when Saul was killed, the woman who was taking care of him, like kind of his, his babysitter, so to speak, um, his nurse, uh, she was taking care of him. And when Saul was killed, they, were, they figured that, hey, that enemy is going to come and kill us because they've killed Saul. They're going to kill the rest of his, his members of his family. And so she fled. She took him when he was kind of a baby or maybe a young infant. And uh, when they were fleeing, she dropped him, and it broke probably both of his legs or his feet. And, you know, they probably grew back wrong, and they, they grew back so that he couldn't walk. Um, but a fall is what injured him. Now, let's take the metaphor to, 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 that, to that example. We, as people, are broken because of a fall, aren't we? Our fall wasn't physical, but our fall was spiritual, and it came at the beginning of time when a man named Adam and a woman named Eve sinned. They brought brokenness into our world, and not just into our world in the form of disease and natural disasters and death, but they brought a thing called the sinful nature on each and every one of us as people so that every one of us is born with this propensity to want to do what God doesn't want us to do and to, in the process, put ourselves into horrible situations and live in horrible ways, in ways that we were not designed to live. So we're broken, like Mephibosheth was broken because of the fall. We depend on someone else for salvation because as hard as we work, we can't get it. So we know he was lame. We also know that he came from nowhere. He came from a place called Lodabar, which translates roughly to nothing or nowhere. We would say maybe like some, a place in the middle of nowhere. He was living in self-exile because of his grandfather, and at this point in his life, Society had kicked him to the curb. I mean, think about what would have happened if Saul would have been king and would have been killed. I mean, he probably, a couple generations down, might have been the king. And he would have been the highest person in society, and now he's forgotten about. He's tossed aside. He's in nowhere. And a lot of us can relate to that place of being someone, uh, not being someone of importance, or maybe at some point in some time we were, and then we got kicked to the curb, and, you know, we just kind of got tossed to the side. Nobody forgot we've been forgotten about so he was lame he came from nowhere he belonged thirdly we know that he belonged to the enemy we know he belonged to the enemy Mephibosheth as I said was grandson of Saul who was David's enemy David didn't kill Saul but David or Saul was definitely his enemy anybody that comes at you with an army and throws spears at you is probably not your friend right they're probably your enemy so Saul was David's enemy and he and he, he belonged to Saul's family we also, whether we're aware of it or not, 
We now or once did belong to the enemy of God. And, and, and people don't realize this, but uh, because we have this thing where we like to say, everybody's a child of God. It's not true. Only those who have repented, only those who have asked him, are adopted into his family. I mean, it doesn't take much to be a child of God, but not everybody is a child of God. And so here we have, here we have a, a Mephibosheth who once belonged to the enemy, and then David uh, now is bringing him into his own household. Um, but, you know, we can relate to that in the sense that we just, we, we were, we were, we don't even know it sometimes, you know? And here's something to think of, those of you that are Christians. Anybody who doesn't belong to Jesus, doesn't belong to God, belongs to the enemy, again, whether they know it or not. So that means that you're gonna have trouble in this life. Sometimes there will be people at work. Sometimes there will be people over you. Sometimes there will be people at school, uh, teenagers. Sometimes there will be people that you run in contact with, maybe that you're friends with, who the enemy will use against you and they don't even know they're being used. And they'll come against you and they'll come against you. And uh, again, it's not like they're possessed or anything that they're just, they belong to the enemy and they don't even know it because they haven't given their lives to Jesus Christ. And so in 1 John 3, 8, it says, but when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who's been sinning since the beginning, but the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. So we know Mephibosheth was lame, came from nowhere, he belonged to the enemy. Same as us, same as us. At this point in the story, let's pick it back up again, uh, Mephibosheth is gonna come to David. Now, David sent out people and he said, hey, go get Mephibosheth. Go to, go to Lodabar, go to Nowheresville, and go get this guy named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, at this time, I gotta tell you, if I'm putting myself in his shoes, he's probably shaking in his boots when he gets a knock on the door and the king's men show up and say, the king wants to see you. Why would he be doing that? Well, because it was tradition for any king that took over a kingdom to kill the whole family of the former king. Why would they do that? They would do that so the people wouldn't rally around the, the, the former king's family and, and revolt and rebel. And so it was just common practice for them to wipe out the entire family. So when he gets a knock on the door, and again, remember, he's living in Lodabar. He's living in Nowheresville. There's a reason that he's living in Nowheresville. It's because he's afraid for his life. So the king comes knocking at his door, and they say, hey, Mephibosheth, the king wants to see you. He summoned you. He's got to be shaking his boots. Now, we have a little bit of a look behind the curtain already. We know that David said he wants to show kindness. And so we know David's intention, but Mephibosheth didn't know that. But, and, he, and I imagine even if the guys had said, hey, Mephibosheth, David wants to show kindness to you. You need to go see the king. He'd probably be like, yeah, right. He's going to lure me to the palace and he's going to, you know, take, take me out. So Mephibosheth at this point, I, I got to think that he's just probably freaked out of his mind. Um, so let's pick up the story um, back at verse 6. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. Probably, again, because he was probably scared. You know, he's probably bowing down like, hey, don't kill me. Um, David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, okay? So David has to tell him, hey, don't be afraid. It's okay. I'm not going to kill you. David said to him, For surely I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you'll always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, probably just completely relieved at this point, and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family, your sons and your servants, to farm, the, or to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. 
Now Ziba had 15 sons, or 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever the Lord my God, or sorry, your servant will do whatever the Lord my king commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. So, in an amazing plot twist, David takes his crippled, cursed nobody from nowhere and reverses his fortune by setting him up on the top of the highest society of the day. How incredible is that? It's like, you know, it's like a rags to riches story kind of a thing with incredible implications. In a place where Mephibosheth didn't have the right to be, to even set foot in, David said, you have a seat at this table. What exactly did that mean for Mephibosheth and what does it mean for us? Because like I said, Mephibosheth's story is our story this morning. So let's take a look at what that meant for him and what it means for us. Number one, it means that he had a seat at the table of grace. Now by right, Mephibosheth should have been killed. We talked about that. Not just because his grandfather was a king, but because his grandfather was unjustly cruel to David several times. But he was shown grace. Grace, if I were to define it, is getting what you don't deserve. And then he was also shown mercy, which is um, not getting what you do deserve. So he was shown grace and he was shown mercy. Mephibosheth, it meant not having his past held against him. I mean, there's a lot of us who have a past and uh, there's things that we did in our past. There's, there's uh, sin that we committed against God. We've broken his laws. You know, every one of us has fallen short of him. Every one of us has been in rebellion against him until the time that we decide to repent and ask him for forgiveness. We've offended God. We, by rights, should not be able to enter his presence. We, by rights, are objects of his fury and his anger, but because of Jesus. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I... Yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. So here's a guy, Mephibosheth, who's been brought up to the table, even though by rights he should be dead. We are brought into the table of the king, and he says, you know what? By grace, uh, I'm going I'm to shower my grace and my mercy on you, and I'm going to give you a seat at this table. It's pretty incredible. Not only did Mephibosheth have a, have a seat at the table of grace, he had a seat at the table of provision. Mephibosheth was given acres and acres of land and cattle and sheep and 35 servants to work for him. By doing this, the king had made him a wealthy man who would never need to depend on anyone again. I mean, think of what he came from, where he couldn't work the land. He was probably a charity case because he couldn't work. He couldn't provide for himself, and so he had to depend on other people. Now, all of a sudden, it'd be like God taking someone from a, you know, a really nasty-looking hut, trailer house kind of a thing and saying, um, look, I'm going to put you up in this mansion. I'm going to give you all the cars you ever wanted. I'm going to give you an army of people who have a business who are going to take care of you, and uh, they're gonna, you're never going to have to worry about money again, and they're going to attend to your every single need. I mean, it was like better than the Beverly Hillbilly story. It was Mephibosheth, okay? How many of you remember Beverly Hillbillies? You're old. <laughs> oh, that's good. I remember them too. Um, so here's Mephibosheth, he's taken care of. For the rest of his life, he's taken care of. And not only was he taken care of, and not only did he not have to worry about needing anything from anyone else again, and being rich, and being wealthy, and influential, and all those things that come with it, but he got to eat at the king's table. Who do you think had the best food in the land? The king. The king had the best food. So even if Mephibosheth had nothing else, 
And even if he was destitute, he would always have a place to stay and he would always have a place to eat. And, and at that time, Israel was becoming a superpower of the world, so it was the best of the best. I mean, literally the best in the world was laid out at his fingertips. So he goes from having nothing and being a charity case and having no money to being provided for and being able to eat at the king's table. Likewise, when we choose to follow the king, he takes care of our needs. And sometimes he takes care of that need in abundance. You know, I've been following Jesus since I was 10 years old. Um, obviously, all of my adult life, all the time that I've been on my own um, from underneath my parents' household, I've never once had a need that God didn't fill. Never once. Now, I've had a couple wants that uh, God didn't fill, and that's probably for good reason. But I've never had a need. I've always had more than I've ever needed. Always. When in good times and bad times, I've always had enough. God takes care of his kids when we stay close to him. In... Uh, Sorry, I'm looking for that. Oh, yeah, in Philippians 4.19. And the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches we have been, uh, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. He'll supply all of our needs. He'll supply them. So as we follow Jesus, he supplies our needs. So like Mephibosheth, we have our need for provision met. So we have a seat at the table of grace. We have a seat at the table of provision. Mephibosheth also had a seat at the table of protection. Now this is an interesting part of the story, one that I've read through but just didn't really remember, and it kind of stuck out to me as I was studying Mephibosheth's life in preparation for this. In 2 Samuel 21, there's a set of circumstances. I might just go into it real quick. There was a famine in the land. Um, this is later on in David's reign. There was a famine for three years. And David inquired of God and said, God, why is there a famine in the land? And God said, it's because there's this neighboring city and Saul, the, the, a neighboring city of enemies. And Saul went in and he, tried, he wiped them out. He basically tried to wipe out the entire town unjustly in cold blood. He killed a bunch of them. And so God told him, go to them and, and ask them what you can do to make things right. And so David did. He, he went to them and said, what can I do for you to make things right? And they said, give us every member of Saul's house. We want to kill him. That will give us justice. And so, you know, this Old Testament, this is how things were done. Um, and so Saul, or, or David rather, he gave him all the house of Saul, except he spared Mephibosheth. The enemy wanted him, and, so, and David stepped in and said, no, you can't have him. He's under my protection. He eats at my house. Because he ate at the king's table and was under his protection, when the enemy came looking to destroy him, the king stepped in and said, I don't think so. And if you guys know, and as we talked about this morning, the enemy of our souls is always after us, but God has us firmly in hand. As long as we stay close to him, we live in the shadow of his protection. So in Psalms 91, 9 through 11, it says this, if you make the Lord your refuge, the most high your shelter, no evil will conquer you, no plague will come near your home. Let me read that part again. No plague will come near your home. Amen? For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. So we have that protection. Same as Mephibosheth. The enemy's always after us, looking for ways to destroy us. But God says, no, I don't think so. I'm not going to let anything near you because you're a child of his. So Mephibosheth, seat at the table of grace, seat at the table of provision. He had the table, a seat at the table of protection. And lastly, he had a seat at the table of family. Probably my favorite line in this entire passage is when it says, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's Sons. One of the greatest gifts Mephibosheth received wasn't the wealth, wasn't the protection, but it was that he was brought into a family. You know, if you remember the story, um, his family was, was, was killed. He was, one of the, he was pretty much the last of his family. And so all of a sudden he goes from this place where he's in Nowheresville 
living, you know, he, he did have a wife and a son, but he's living out here with no one. And then all of a sudden he's brought into a family, and not just any family, he's brought into the royal family. And David had many sons and daughters. And so all of a sudden he had these brothers and he had these sisters. Um, he had this family out of nowhere all of a sudden, uh, a very powerful family that he was brought into. Same thing with us. The Bible tells us we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the king. And when you say yes to Jesus, you're brought into a family of believers. You're brought into a family of believers, not just here, not just in this place, but all over the world, you're brought into a family of believers. But the family of believers that you're brought into here in this local church, this, this place we call home, Indianola First, they are also your family. And the incredible thing about that is you have, an, uh, being a part of the family has incredible privileges. One of those privileges is that you got people to help you carry the burden. You know, there's times when it's tough. There's times when life gets tough. There's times when, you know, things happen like your house starts on fire. And that's happened a couple of times to different people in this building. Um, there's times when, you know, there's a sickness or there's a, a diagnosis or there's treatment that needs to take place. And it's hard for uh, you to continue to do the daily chores and the daily tasks, tasks that you do and continue to, to live. A, you're, you're thrust into a brand new lifestyle. But guess what? You got people here to help you bear those burdens. And so that's what's really cool. We got a people that can help carry the stress. You got a family here that helps encourage you and sharpen you. You know, there's times when we get off kilter a little bit. We get off tracker. There's times when the enemy wants to get in and mess with our minds a little bit. Sometimes it's nice to just sit down with a brother or sister in Christ and just talk about those things that we're thinking. And they're a great sounding board. And the Lord, more often than not, speaks through other individuals in the church. I can't tell you how many providential conversations I've had with people where they didn't even know that God was speaking through them, but he was speaking through them right to me. And, and maybe I'm off kilter in something, and they, they can say, no, 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 I, I don't think that's right. We need to look at the truth of the word of God, and they, they point me back to scripture. It's awesome to be a part of the family of God. There's nothing like it in the world. You got a family that keeps you grounded, keeps you grounded, that can help you, that you can get advice from, that you can get ideas from, that, you know, if you don't have a gift, maybe somebody else in the body of Christ has a gift. It's pretty awesome. We got a whole family. And so Mephibosheth had a family, and we did too. Kind of wrapping up this morning, kind of a short message, because we're going to do something very special. I'm going to have the uh, worship team come on up this morning, if you would. And uh, Daniel, if I could teach you, kind of just play behind me a little bit, if you would. Thank you. Um, like I said before, Mephibosheth's story this morning is our story. A king seeks us out, brings us from nowhere. Hey, didn't you think that was cool? Mephibosheth didn't have to go to the king. The king sought him out, found him in the middle of nowhere. Didn't even talk about that. But a king seeks us out, brings us up from nowhere, out of our brokenness, to give us a place at his family and at his table promoting us with undeserved blessings. And you might wonder, why was David so nice to this guy? It's not like Mephibosheth was entitled to any of this stuff. Why did David take the initiative to do this? What was David's motivation? Because we saw there was other members of Saul's household and David didn't go after them. He went after this one individual. Why is that? Well, you saw it a little bit in the text, but we didn't really highlight it. It's because David's, uh, David and Mephibosheth's father were close friends. And they made a covenant, a promise before God. And that covenant was Mephibosheth's ticket to the table. This morning, let's carry on the metaphor. 
we, because of a covenant, have a ticket to the king's table. Our covenant comes through Jesus Christ. See, God made a way for us to have a seat at a place when we should never have a seat. None of us are holy enough. None of us are righteous enough. None of us are good enough. None of us can do enough things to get a seat at this table, this incredible table where there's protection, provision, there's family. There's all these great things. None of us should be able to sit there. We're in way over our heads. But Jesus, there was a covenant made through Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled that covenant and the fulfillment of that covenant is our ticket to get a seat at the table. And God's inviting all of us to the table this morning to say, come, have a seat right here. I've already given you a way through my son to do it. And there might be some of you in this room this morning and you've never taken that opportunity to get your ticket. Today's your day. This morning could be your morning. What does that look like? Well, it's pretty easy. And I've mentioned it a couple times already. You have to just tell you have to reach out to the Lord and you have to tell him, hey, I realize that I messed up. I realize I've been living in rebellion against you. Maybe you don't even know that you're rebelling against God, but you belong to the enemy if you don't belong to God. So you have to ask for forgiveness. And then you have to just invite him to come and be a part of your life. Invite him into a relationship with you. And then set your heart and your mind to follow him for the rest of your life. That's what it takes to get a ticket to the table this morning. And I sometimes I give an altar call. Sometimes you'll see us do that. I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm not going to ask you to bow and close your eyes and repeat a prayer. But if that's you this morning, and you've never taken the opportunity to, to claim your ticket to the table of God, I want you to know that we're going to be taking communion here in a couple of minutes. We're going to talk about that. But as we do that this morning, as we're in that process, if you will just, in your heart, Make that commitment to the Lord. He'll see that this morning. He'll see that commitment. And then as you begin to walk it out, he's gonna continue to be with you. And and, and what I'd love for you to do is if if you do make that commitment, I'd love for you to talk with myself or Pastor Barry, Pastor Donnie, Pastor Bryce, any of the staff this morning, and let us know that you made that commitment so we can help you in that journey and bring you into that family that we talked about. But this morning, I wanna make that available to you and let you know that that ticket, it's available for anybody. This table that we're going to be a part of today, for those of us that are believers, excuse me, we're going to come to a special table this morning, and that's the table of communion. It's a table that stretches from here all the way down back through history. It's a, it's a, it's a very awesome company of people to be accepted into and to be a part of, and uh, we get the opportunity to do it once again this morning. So if you decided to make Jesus the center of your life, and if you're following him today, then you're welcome to share this communion with us here in just a couple of minutes. That's all we ask. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to do anything specific or attend any classes. But if you've called Jesus your Savior, if you're following him with your whole heart today, then you are welcome to take communion with us here this morning and have a seat at the table. As I said, Jesus paid a high price for us to sit at the table together as a family this morning. That's why we take communion in honor of the price that was paid. Go ahead and take the bread. That's the top part. Looks like a guitar pick. You see, Jesus was beaten within an inch of his life. His body was literally crushed 
by the torture and the execution that he endured so that we could have a seat here this morning. That's what this bread represents, his broken body. So as we take this together in just a minute and it crumbles in your mouth, I want you to remember with every bite that you take that in the same way that this thing is crushed in our mouth, his body was crushed for us. Let's go ahead and thank God and take this together this morning. I just want to say a little prayer of thanksgiving for the body. Thank you, Lord, for your body that was broken, bruised, crushed for us. I thank you, God, that you had to endure incredible things to pay a price for our healing, for our restoration, for our redemption. God, we thank you so much, Jesus. Thank you for taking that cross for us. Not only was his body crushed, but he shed blood through the whipping that he received with this tool they call the cat of nine tails. And if you don't know what that is, it was an old Roman torture device. And it was literally a leather whip with nine tails that came out from it. And they would, they would put like a tar or a resin on it. And they would put shards of, of rock, really sharp rock and sometimes metal in it. And they would whip someone's back and it would dig in and then they would pull it back and it would just rip their flesh. I mean, it's, it's kind of disgusting, but that's what Jesus endured for us. We don't talk about the whipping that he took very often, but that happened right before the cross. And that whipping was important because it was part of our redemption. And the blood that was spilled when that was happening was part of our redemption. It was part of the ticket that we get to be a part of the table that we're a part of this morning. Not only was it the cat of nine tails, but then there was also spikes driven through his hands and his feet as he was put on the cross. And this juice this morning represents that blood that he spilled for us. And as you drink it in just a second, I want you to remember that sacrifice that he gave for us. So let's go ahead and drink it together this morning. Let's thank God for that as well. Jesus, I want to thank you for the blood that you spilled for us. Lord, the blood that offers us so much. That blood that paid the price for our sins so that we could enter the presence of God so that we could have access to you at any point and at any time. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for that. We thank you for enduring the suffering of the whipping. God, for enduring the suffering of the cross, for the blood that you spilled on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's go ahead and stand this morning. We're going to end today by worshiping God, and we're going to sing about his goodness one more time. And I want you to look and think about this song in the light of what we talked about, about how we're individuals who by no means should be able to be in the place that we are, but we've been given unmerited grace and favor of family protection provision as we talk about the goodness of God this morning we sing about it. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.